Ephesians, I just wanted to say and make you aware of something to be praying for and be praying for our church about. Um, I was invited to participate in a, a vision dinner for something called Saturate the Sound. It is a new network or movement that is uh, being led under the visionary of Jeff Vanderstelt. Uh, many of you guys know his book, Saturate and Gospel Fluency. He is trying to get churches together to make disciples together. Uh, the vision is Saturate the Sound wants to see a gospel saturation movement happen across the Puget Sound. We want every man, woman, and child to have a daily encounter with Jesus where we live, work, learn, and play. We know this requires new churches and church renewals. It will involve every disciple and church working together. I'm all into this. So uh, please be in prayer uh, for this, for Jeff, for the leadership of this of movement that is trying to happen. Please bear in prayer for the churches in Des Moines as um, I try to rally the troops in a sense, get them on board with how do we make churches or make disciples together? How do we saturate Des Moines so that everyone who lives in Des Moines can have a daily encounter with Jesus through the church being where they are in the city? What, I mean, it's a biblical vision, right? It's a beautiful vision of saturation, of the glory of God being spread, of the gospel being multiplied, of of churches really being about discipleship and no longer being about uh, competing against one another for having the best event or having the best pastor um, or programs or whatever it is, best music, uh, what, what would it look like for churches to come together and make disciples together? So I'll leave these little cards up here on the, on the bar. Uh, there's some prayers here that you can join them in prayer for and just a little bit more about uh, what it would look like with Saturate the Sound. So I wanted to say that, uh, too, for the recording, just so that people um, who are not here can, uh, can listen and be in prayer for that as well. So, Well, with that being said, let's jump into Ephesians. Normally, when you start a new study, there is no one more excited to start the study than the preacher, right? It's, it's hard to blame because when I prepare and I preach, I get so much out of the text that I really would hope that every one of you would get the chance to preach. I know Will said something similar as he was preparing. You just, you get so much out of it. You can't be able, you can't communicate all that you're learning, but it's such a great way to really get into the text and make it come alive. But as I was thinking about it, it was just when I was actually downstairs in the bathroom this morning. I was thinking about this. Aren't we all preachers? Men, shouldn't we be proclaiming the word of God to our wives and to our families? Shouldn't we be proclaiming the, the excellencies of Christ in our workplace? So I pray as we start into Ephesians that you would be just as excited as I am to go through this material, that you would be digging into what it says, that you would um, maybe learn from my failings on what not to do in preaching, um, that you could be able to exegete the text well, that you'd be able to communicate the truths of God's word to your neighbors, to the people that... Uh, live around you to your whatever sphere of influence that God has placed you in. So my hope and prayer is that as you listen to the pre whoever preaches at the Mountain Church, that you would actually be equipped to become more mature preachers. Amen? Okay, so uh, we're going to be in, in Ephesians for about 14 weeks. I've kind of mapped it out. That's, that's the, the pace at what we're going at. And um, I'll be... I'll be sending out a preaching schedule um, in an email soon so that you can know what we'll be covering each, each week. As you, say, as you saw from this week, we're just covering two verses. 
Uh, and the reason for that is, is I have some background material to cover, and there's a lot in two verses right here. So uh, what we'll do together is we'll look at what the text means to the original audience. From that, we will try to look at the principles from the text that um, are true across God's word. And from those principles, we will then seek to try to apply that to our context, to our situation, to our church. My hope is that every teaching that you hear at the Mountain Church, you'll be able to answer the question, so what? What influence does this have on my life? What impact does this have on my life? What, what's the purpose? My goal is not just to give you more information. My goal is not to, to amaze you with my astute studiousness. <laughs> I th- already, <laughs> thank you, Micah. I thought about making a joke about um, starting through the book of Halakai, but uh, anyways. <clears throat> so today we're going to introduce the letter to the Ephesians. We're going to look at the background, the historical context, who the letter was written to, why it was written, when it was written, major themes, the kind of outline of the book, and then jump into those first two verses. Uh, one commentary, as I was reading, said it like this about Ephesians, pound for pound, Ephesians may be, well, may be the most influential document ever written. Within the history of Christianity, only the Psalms, the Gospel of John, and Romans have been so instrumental in shaping the life and thought of Christians. But all of these three, all three of these works are much longer than the few pages of this letter. Ephesians has been greatly described as a Switzerland of the New Testament, the crowned and climax of Pauline theology, and one of the most divine compositions of man. The explanation of gospel and life with Christ provided here is powerful and direct. If read receptively, it is a bombshell. That's what we're getting into. That's why I'm so excited. And um, uh, So before we get in, when we look at the context, before we get in those first two verses, uh, we need to ask the question of who wrote this? Who is the author of this letter? Now, as you heard Peter read, it seems pretty self-explanatory. The very first word in the letter is Paul. Now you think, okay, that's pretty clear. The Bible is really clear about Paul wrote this letter. But I don't know what, for whatever reason, there's kind of this modern intellectual pride of scholars who want to come out with this new revelation or new thought or new discovery that well, in fact, it wasn't Paul. It was someone who was imitating Paul. This is what some people have said, in fact, that uh, because of slight differences maybe in the other letters, that this was written by an imposter. This was written by someone who was imitating Paul. This wasn't, in fact, written by Paul. My general principle is if the Bible says Paul, it was written by Paul. So, does that make sense? I hope so. Uh, in the letter itself, actually, that uh, I'm going to assume Paul writes, put away falsehood, speak the truth in love. And how would the early church have recognized this as God's word if it was written by a liar, right? If this wasn't in fact Paul. <clears throat> uh, if you're unfamiliar with the Christian tradition, unfamiliar with who this guy Paul is, Paul is probably the greatest missionary to ever live. He is responsible for writing a large chunk of the New Testament that we have in our Bibles. Um, Paul was a church planter. He would go from city to city proclaiming the gospel of Jesus. He would make disciples. He would stay in a town for months, years at a time to appoint elders. 
and then he would move on to the next town and start a new church. And you might think, wow, this guy is, sounds awesome. I mean, like a lot of why we're here today is, you could say, is traced to Paul. He was just so passionate about reaching the law, so passionate about the gospel, so passionate about Jesus. He wrote the Bible. Wow, this guy was awesome. And I would contend with you as we read through this, this book uh, that one of the reasons that I believe he was so influential, that God used him so mightily, is because he had such a firm grasp of grace. Because Paul wasn't always Paul. Before he was Paul, he was a guy named Saul. He was a devoted, committed, obedient, faithful rabbi, a Jew, who hated this Christian movement that was starting, that was kind of coming out of the Jewish faith, that was uh, leading people astray from the faith, he thought, uh, that was getting people to worship and strive towards being like a false teacher, this guy named Jesus who was claiming to be God. But Saul had a powerful experience with Jesus on a road to a town called Damascus that radically changed his life. It's one of the clearest examples of when, when you see someone meet Jesus, everything changes. He, he has his name changed from Saul to Paul. He is called as an apostle to the Gentiles. It's his whole mission in life is to reach those who hadn't been in the faith before. And he starts churches all throughout the, the Roman Empire, through Asia Minor, through the Mediterranean. Uh, Paul first arrived in Ephesus, we, we see in Acts 18, around AD 50. Um, and he stayed there about two years on his third missionary journey. Paul had three missionary journeys, and he came to Ephesus on the third one. And uh, the date in which Paul wrote this letter was about 10 years after that. So scholars think around AD 60, 62, somewhere around those lines. And Paul actually wrote this while he was in prison. So it's, it was cool. It's cool to me as I read through this, as we think through that, he mentions that he's in prison, but he doesn't complain about it, right? I think if we were writing an email to family or we were sending a note to those that we loved, oh, the food is terrible. You know, I, I barely see any sunshine or, you know, the activities are really lame, you know, whatever it is. What Paul does with his imprisonment is he takes time to encourage the church. He takes time to speak about the gospel. He takes time to explain profound theology. And it got me thinking about what do we do with our free time? Or what do we do with time that maybe we weren't anticipating having, like getting sick or getting injured and being bedridden or going to jail? I believe I know my church pretty well, but um, maybe some of you have been in jail. I don't know. <laughs> we see the determination, the steadfastness, the laser focus of Paul, that he was about the gospel. He was about people understanding what it meant to live a life in line with the gospel in response to the gospel. Um, the audience that he was writing to, again, you could easily say, well, he was writing to the church in yeah. Ephesus. This is... It says, Paul, an apostle to the saints in Ephesus. But some of the earlier manuscripts actually don't have this phrase in Ephesus. And this has led to some debate on who is the real audience of this letter. Um, the gist of it is, the summary is that Paul wrote this letter. He wrote this letter to the church in Ephesians. Uh, 
and from Ephesus, it spread out to the surrounding region. So this has been called um, a circular letter. So Ephesians, Ephesus might have been the hub to which the letter was sent, but from Ephesus, it went out to the surrounding churches all across Asia Minor. Ephesus, would this area would be kind of like modern-day Turkey. This would be the area that the letter was circulated, and this is kind of supported by the, the reality that the letter is very general. Uh, there's not specific greetings. There's not particular people that he names in his letter, and, and if we think... Okay, Paul was in Ephesus two to three years, starting a church, appointing elders. These would have been people that he knew very well. Why didn't he mention them? And this has led people to believe that it was because he was writing to a larger audience. He was writing to the church, the surrounding church in the uh, surrounding area of Ephesus. It would be similar to like if Paul were to write a a letter to the church in Seattle, and yet that church in Seattle would uh, circulate that letter to... uh, Shoreline and Kent and Burien and Des Moines and SeaTac. That's kind of the, the idea of, of what's going on here. R.C. Sproul says it like this. It's possible that Paul originally sent the letter to Ephesus, but as the letter was sent from church to church, the address was omitted. That's probably why some of the earlier manuscripts don't include that phrase in Ephesus, because the contents had little to do with Ephesus in particular. Or it may have been that the letter was originally in two forms, one for the Ephesians that contained in Ephesus, and one for the general circulation that did not. Um, Ephesus was a major city. It was a big city. The estimated population was about 200 to 250,000. So uh, modern day, that would be like two federal ways, I guess. Um, I don't know how big Bellevue is, but this is a large city, a city that contained one of the seven wonders of the world, uh, the, the Temple of Artemis be a center of education, of thought, of worship. It was one of the five top cities in the Roman Empire, up there with Rome itself, with Corinth, with Alexandria, and Antioch. Um, it, had a, a, it was a port city, so it had a lot of trade and shipping going through. It, this was an influential place, and you can see why Paul would have spent um, so long of a time in Ephesians starting a church, so that from that surrounding area, uh, the church would be multiplied and disciples would be made. Some of the things that are important to understand about the culture of uh, the context is that the people of Ephesus uh, loved to worship this god Artemis. Artemis was like the nurturer, the goddess of the city, the protector. And I think that's fascinating as we read through the letter and we see that, that Paul refers to Jesus as this nurturer. Jesus is the, the head of his church. Jesus is the body, kind of contrasting, I think, the reality that Jesus is better. You may have your, your pagan gods, the gods that you worship, the gods that you serve, but Jesus is in fact better. He's sovereign, he's over all things, and he's reconciling all things to himself. Luke records in Act 19 that many people in Ephesus, upon hearing about Jesus, they burned their, their sorcery books, their pagan worship. Their, there was a, a clear difference on who they, who they worshiped and who their allegiance was to. Christians would would turn from their pagan ways from walking in darkness and walk in light. And this is a theme that we see in the letter of Ephesians. I'm sure Paul would say something similar to us in Seattle. I'm sure our contexts are similar. There's a a pagan spirituality in the area of, um, many people believe in is a higher power, but they would identify themselves as as spiritual. (laughs) Really, it's pagan. Um, And I think it's helpful to think about the context of the biblical letters and identify what the city valued, what Paul was speaking to, the truths of the gospel that he was speaking to, to think about our own cities, 
to think about our own context. What would Paul have addressed in our city? What are the values that Seattle holds, that Des Moines holds, that this area holds that are contrary to the gospel? What are truths that Jesus, that Paul, as Jesus, would speak into? Do we know our city? Do we know the idols that are worshipped here, the values that are uplifted? And how do we grow as communicators to speak the truth into that narrative that they believe? It's fascinating. I was talking with a church planter friend of mine in um, the Fremont area of Seattle, and he was telling me about a a recent article that was released um, that was done by people who study, uh, what is the term, sociologists? Something along those lines. Study people, study movements, um, study trends in people. And it listed kind of what drew people to major cities. What was the city's kind of utmost value? So the article went on to say that, you know, um, New York. New York draws people for business. New York really values business. That's kind of what people seek as they go to New York. Or, uh, shoot, what was the other one? Uh, San Francisco. Entrepreneurial uh, uh, tech, you know, they seek San Francisco. Another one was... Boston. People go to Boston seeking education. Boston is well known for the, the, the schools that are surrounding it. And it was interesting um, when they talked about what draws people to Seattle. Just anyone throwing a throw out a wild guess? Coffee? Coffee? Uh, yeah, liberal thinking, independence. Yeah. That's what I was thinking. But interestingly enough, the, the article said that what drew people to Seattle, what, uh, what the city valued, was comfort. And it got me thinking about, okay, if, if we are, as we'll see here, saints, we're set apart, we're Christians, how, does, how are we different than Seattle? What do our lives show that we comfort most? I think many people in Seattle, it's a comfortable place to live. Uh, the comfort of, you can kind of do whatever you want. You want to go hiking, you want to go skiing, you want to go to the water, you want to, uh, it kind of has everything. It's about making you comfortable, whatever you want. What do our lives, how do we uh, demonstrate the reality that we are seeking comfort utmost too, but we're finding comfort in, in something that's outside of this, something that's even better than, I don't know, recreation, better than marijuana, better than couch. In looking at the purpose of the letter, uh, there's not a specific, it doesn't seem like there's a specific reason that Paul wrote, like there was a, a certain problem that he was addressing. Uh, the purpose is more general, talking about what it means to be in Christ and the impact that the gospel should have on our life, which has led many people to say and believe that Ephesians is probably one of the most contemporary letters in all of Scripture. Meaning, apart from Paul's remarks about slavery, about being a bondservant, Paul could have very easily written Ephesians to the mountain church. Does that, that easily apply, that contemporary? Um, Ephesians could have been written to a modern church and uh, some of these major themes that Paul includes in the letter is uh, the mystery of God. We see this about uh, seven times in the letter, the, the whole idea of this term, uh, the mystery which the mystery that God is revealing is that Christ is reconciling all things to himself. Christ is bringing uh, 
down the walls of hostility. He's bringing people together in himself. In the church, God is unifying Greek and Gentile, all people in himself. This is the mystery of, of what Paul is getting at. Other themes are reconciliation. Uh, the sovereign plan of God, we'll see this next week as we jump into the passage, where Paul talks about again and again, the, to the glorious grace by the will of God. And God is the one who is acting and moving and responsible. But the theme that I believe is most relevant and what I titled our study through uh, the book of Ephesians off of is this whole idea of being in Christ. What does it mean to be in Christ? Ephesians uh, uses this phrase, in Christ, uh, more than any of Paul's other letters. This this phrase occurs um, over 35 times in the letter. And the expression, I believe, is is rooted in um, identity. Rooted to belonging to Christ. Those who have been in Christ are those who have united with him in his death, in his resurrection and new life, and they have a new identity that, change, that changes their, basically their entire existence. The whole letter is kind of broken up into two uh, sections along these lines. Chapter 1 through 3 talks about um, the unity of being in Christ, talks about kind of the cosmic vision of being in Christ, and then the, the last three chapters talk about specifically what that, how that should flesh itself out. What does that look like in the church? What should that look like in the family? What should that look like in the workplace? All of this being in Christ is why Paul refers uh, to, to twice actually praying that the church in Ephesus would know what it means to be in him, would understand and, uh, and realize the love that is wide and long and high and deep a love that surpasses all knowledge. Um, as I was doing study this week, I, I found a, an illustration, a story from a guy, uh, I believe his first name is Warren Wearsby, right, Kerry? Um, who, who wrote a commentary on this, and he, he describes um, who Paul is writing the letter of Ephesians 2 in this way. Talks about this uh, girl named Hetty Green, who has gone down in history as America's greatest miser when she died in 1916. Green left an estimated value of over 100 million. Just think about the richness of that in 1916. She ate cold oatmeal because it cost to heat it. Her son had to suffer a leg amputation because she delayed so long in looking for a free clinic um, that his case became incurable. She was wealthy, yet she chose to live like a pauper. Crazy. She was so foolish that she hastened her own death by bringing on an attack while arguing about the value of drinking skim milk. Hetty Green is an illustration of far too many Christian believers today. They have limitless wealth at their disposal, and yet they live like paupers. It was to this kind of Christian that Paul wrote the letter to Ephesians. This is what Paul is trying to get us to see. What does it mean to be in Christ? How should this affect the way that we live? How should this affect our understanding of the church? Ephesians is great on telling us what does it mean to be the church? So in light of all of that, in light of all of the background of what we just covered, this is why I I wanted to press in to the book of Ephesians. I want us to be rock solid in our understanding of what does it mean to be in Christ individually? What does it mean for us to be in Christ as a church? And how should that 
flesh itself out in the life of our church. Does that make sense? That's where we're going. And another reason I, I want us to be rock solid in our identity. This, I believe, is, is the problem. This is my problem. This is the church's problem is we forget who we are. We don't know who we are. We see this confusion in our, in our culture, in our society. People don't know who they are. Churches have lost a sense of who they are, and we're studying Ephesians to root ourselves in the rock-solid foundation of Christ, putting our identity in him. Now, although you might think I, I could not have, I could have gone a lot further into the context, into the background of the letter. And if you're familiar with knowing more, knowing more about Ephesus, knowing more about who Paul was, uh, how this fit into the missionary journey, I would love to share uh, the commentary resources that I have. I would love to gift you with a study Bible. Uh, I think studying the context and knowing the context is really important in our understanding of Scripture. So with that being said, that's kind of the foundation that I'm going to lay for getting into the letter. And with that being said, why don't we jump into the first two verses? You guys ready? Ephesians chapter 1, verse 1. Paul, who we know wrote the letter, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God. What is an apostle? How do we define apostle? An apostle is, in one sense of the word, someone, a word that was used to describe someone who was a special relationship with Jesus, who met Jesus, who walked with Jesus, who was discipled by Jesus, who was sent out by the church. Someone who had been directly commissioned by Jesus, who, um, in a lot of sense, the, the whole idea of writing scriptures and, and canonization of the scriptures had to be tied to an apostle. They had special authority. Paul oftentimes had to defend his authority as an apostle. He, he wrote as an apostle, as he says, they're by the will of God. I don't think this is something that Paul would have boasted in or claimed, I chose to be an apostle. I was good enough to be an apostle. I was somehow smart enough to be an apostle. Paul would say he is an apostle, like he says in Ephesians, by the grace of God, by the will of God. It's all because of God that I'm an apostle. I don't have authority in myself. I don't have some sort of uniqueness why God chose me to be an apostle. It was all by his grace. And as an apostle, the, the people in Ephesus, the audience was to listen to him. He was writing, in a sense, as God, as God's word. And again, he says, I'm an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God. We mentioned this earlier in the background, but the will of God, the sovereignty of God, is a major theme all throughout the book. The will of God uh, appears, I think, more frequently here than any other letter. And the concern here in talking about the will of God, the sovereignty of God, the purpose of God, is that we have a God-centered theology. We have a theology that cherishes and worships God for the reality that he is the center. He's the initiator. He's the actor. He's the sustainer. He is the creator. He is the one who, who moves. Do we think about our lives in this way? Do we say, well, um, I'm, I'm alive by the will of God. I do well in my job by the, by the will of God. I'm a father by the will of God. I'm a husband by the will of God. I'm a, I'm a daughter by the will of God. I have a place to live by the will of God. 
do we think about our life in this way? It's very easy, I think, subtly to think, um, well, I'm here in this job because I went to this school, I worked hard, I got good grades, and I, I kind of won all those other losers who I beat out. That's why I got my job. I, I was better than those other guys that they interviewed. Do we think about this with promotions? I got a promotion because I earned it. I was working hard. My boss finally recognized my hard work, finally gets some credit. Now I, I have a little bit of play money that I can use. Do we have a God-centered theology? Do we have a God-centered view? Do we, do we recognize and realize that everything that we have is by the will of God? Or do we have a pride, a, a self-dependence? Paul addresses the, the church in Ephesus as saints. It says, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God to the saints. Now, this term can be um, confusing. It can be un, unhelpful, uh, especially if you have a background in, in Catholic tradition. Uh, when you think about saints, you think about someone who is especially pious, right? Think about someone who um, unusually religious, a special title. My, my parents came from a Catholic tradition, and I went to a, a Catholic high school, and I was taught about what you had to do to become a saint, I thought it was pretty fascinating. You had to have two miracles linked to yourself. So one of these miracles could include like levitation. I always thought that would be cool. Like levitate when I pray, that'd be a cool miracle. This person had to be a saint and it was the, the process of becoming a saint was technically known as canonization uh, where the, the person after they died, their life was examined, whether they were worthy of being called a saint. Uh, if it was found to be above reproach, if they were, have told to have performed at least two miracles. I can't even think of one miracle I've done, right? Then he would be qualified to be made a saint. I believe it was also reserved for males only. Is that correct? No? Saintess? Okay. <laughs> the word saint literally just means holy one a person of God. It could be described as someone who is set apart. That would be a better way to, de to describe saint. Set apart. Someone who is no longer in Adam, in death, in the world, in the flesh, but someone who is in Christ. It's fascinating to think about of all the words that Paul could have used to describe the church, Christian, to the disciples, to the lights, to the family of faith, to the covenant community. He chose the word saint. Set apart. I think this will become more clear to us, more real to us as we read the letter and we see the distinction that Paul makes often between the distinction between those who are in Christ and those who are not. The transformation that is to occur after you are in Christ. He uses phrases like walking in darkness versus walking in light. Christians as saints are to be set apart. Paul also uses the word faithful to describe these Christians, this church. And faithful could be characterized by steadfast affection or allegiance to someone or something. The allegiance here is faithful, characterized by a steadfast allegiance, steadfast affection to Christ Jesus. 
That is how Paul describes the church in Ephesus. I hope he would use the same language to talk about us. Kevin DeYoung says in his, uh, the notes of the Gospel Transformation Bible that faithful does not mean dependable as much as it means full of faith in Jesus Christ. Steadfast. Devoted. Paul then concludes his blessing in verse 2 by saying, Grace and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. This word grace means uh, goodwill. It's freely given from God. Favor given from God. Regardless of the character, uh, not somehow earning or deserving, but a free gift. Then he says peace, which could be defined as harmony, tranquility. It's at the Old Testament concept of shalom, is wholeness, health, freedom from worry. And those are the two verses that we are looking at today. That's what I have for exegeting, getting the, the meaning out, what it meant to the original audience. But what are some principles that we can apply this morning to our life based on just these two verses? The first question I think we have to ask ourselves is, how do we become saints? Are we saints? Are we faithful? How do we get in Christ? How does that happen? What does it mean to have Jesus as Lord of my life? Am I in Christ? How do I get there? I think Paul makes it clear that just as he describes the reality that he is an apostle by the will of God, all those who are in Christ are in Christ by the will of God. He, he explains this in a little more detail in the next section, but this is how we are in Christ. This is how undeserving sinners enter into a relationship with God. Because of God. Because of his grace. Becoming a saint does not happen by doing good works. Becoming a saint does not happen because you're special. You're smarter than those pagans. You were born into the right family. You've done enough good things. Becoming a saint does not happen by saying a superstitious prayer with the unbiblical idea of inviting Jesus into your heart. It happens by the will of God. And the response to, to God changing your life is faith and repentance, which God grants. Paul writes later on in the, in the letter to the church of Ephesus that we are saved by grace through faith, and this is not of your own doing. It is the gift of God. Not a result of works so that no one can boast. What does this mean? There is nothing about your salvation that you can attribute to yourself other than your sin. That's your role in, in your salvation. Now, while I love this doctrine, I love this teaching because it's all in his grace. There's nothing in myself. It's just God, for whatever reason, loving me because he loves me. At the same time, that may make some of you very uncomfortable. That might even, you might even be kind of trying to close your ears right now. 
Because I was taught, well, I did this. I made this decision. It was up to me. I was smart enough to realize that Jesus is Lord. I was good enough. That's really at the heart of it, I think. Do you have a God-centered theology? Do you understand your indebtedness to God's grace? When God saves an individual, he grants him or her faith and repentance, and these are gifts. Paul uses this illustration later in the letter of being made alive in Christ. Dead people can't make themselves come to life. A dead person doesn't decide, I want to come to life now. They need outside help. This is first, we had to be clear on, this is God's grace, this is the will of God. But how do I know that I'm a saint? A guy named Matthew Henry, who um, has some pretty famous commentaries. This is actually not in my study. Will sent this to me, and I thought it was so good I wanted to share it with you. This is like this. All Christians must be saints. If they do not come under the character of a saint on earth, they will never be saints in glory. Those are not saints who are not who not faithfully believe in Christ and are not true to the profession that they make of relation to their Lord. It goes on to say that no peace nor grace, but from God the Father and from the Lord Jesus Christ and the best saints need fresh supplies of the spirit and desire to grow. How do you know that you're a saint? How do you know that you're in Christ? This might be a little strong. I, th- I think it is strong. But I think it gets to, the, to try to wake us up. It's kind of this complacent, easy-to-believe American theology that teaches you just walk down an aisle, you say a prayer, and you're good to go. I don't see that in the scriptures. I don't see that in the letter to Ephesians. I think this counters the American mentality and, and that suggests or believes that you can be a Christian, but your life doesn't really have to change. Will and I were talking yesterday with the music team about the reality that Will said just within this week, he's had three conversations with people who claim that you can be a Christian and not be a disciple. Like there's somehow a difference between those who are saved and those who want to grow, those who want to learn, those who actually want to obey Christ. Can you make that argument from the scriptures? One commentator who wrote the NIV application commentary said it like this. The understanding of the gospel in Ephesians challenges and redefines a superficial understanding of the gospel prevalent in our day. This gospel requires people to act. This faith works. Believers have a responsibility to make choices and to change the pattern of their lives. An easy believism or a passive faith cannot survive under the penetrating message of this letter. This letter requires us to change our inner being and character in a radical way. Life can no longer merely happen. For all our activity must now take place in, to, and for the Lord. Truth and love as defined by Christ must become the twin forces guiding all else. Finally, he says, in fact, the contrast in Ephesians 5.8 functions as a summary of much of the letter. For once you were in darkness, but now you are 
light in the Lord, live as children of light. Such portrayals of life before and with Christ are designed to keep people from living like everyone around them and to call them to mirror their relation with Christ in their daily lives. Do we have this desire to reflect Christ? Do we have a desire to grow in Christ? Is your life characterized by an affection and an allegiance to Christ that is growing, that is seeking to be above all things? Are you changing from the inside out to look more like Christ? And this is where I think we have the hope of what Ephesians talks about. This is where we have the hope of the gospel is that it fundamentally takes place when Jesus changes our identity. Because we cannot change apart from having our identity changed in Christ. I was at a conference this week uh, listening to a guy who was talking providentially enough about identity and what does it mean to be in Christ. He talked about, you know, in, in churches or as church leaders, we kind of, we try a lot of different things to change people. We want them to become more like Christ. So we, we try different series of things and he, he lists out a series of things that um, are kind of go from most superficial to what actually leads to, to lasting change. The first one, the most superficial, he says, we try to change people's environment. We think if we just change the environment, then that'll bring about change. That doesn't really, short-lived, not lasting. We might have changed their behavior. Maybe we try to do this with our kids. Right, we just try to change their behavior. We never get to the root issue. We might try to change their capacities or their capabilities. He says, well, if we just teach them enough, then they'll change. And I think this is helpful too as we think about those in our life that God has placed in our life to share the gospel with. What really are we trying to get at? We might try to change their belief. That might be even a little lower. I don't know how many of you guys have, have tried evangelism in the sense of maybe you're talking with a, a person of a Muslim background who believes in Islam and say, um, well, let me tell you about Jesus. He's actually the one real God. You believe in, in Satan who came down as an angel and misled a bunch of people away from Jesus. I think that would go well. <laughs> how do we really, in our own life, how do we really bring change? It starts with identity. Who are you? Have you ever asked this question to someone? Not what do you do? Who are you? It's deep. It's not usual. Make someone think. Where does your identity come from? Now, outside of Christ, identity comes from, I think, primarily three things what you have, what you do, and what other people think about you. And as Christians, we are very prone to have those define who we are as well, aren't we? We are very prone to put our identity in, in those things. So I, I only feel good about myself. I only feel comforted and, and assured when my identity is, uh, well, everyone seemed to love my message today. What I did was great, so I feel good. Or you're at work, you have a group of friends, you're just striving and longing for them to approve of you. Your self-esteem just goes up and down based on your perception of how well your approval is of others. What happens though is we get into this mode of self-promotion and self-protection. 
So our identity is fragile. We're, we're not building it on something solid. It's on others or what we do or something that can be taken away. But we get this protection about it or we get this need to promote ourselves. You ever been around someone who just talks about themselves all the time and what they do? And it's like they're just kind of fishing for things. The hope of the gospel and the reality of the gospel is that there is nothing, your identity is not based on anything that you do, anything that you have, and what anyone thinks about you other than God. Who are you? And what is your identity in? I did an exercise this week that was a little weird for me, but it was kind of powerful. Um, you might not be into this thing, but I would encourage you this week to try it, maybe even now. Close your eyes and imagine Jesus walking to this room. And he takes you into the back and he, he sits down with you. What would he say about you? You are mine. You are my, my, my beloved family. You are loved and accepted beyond your wildest dreams. I died for you. This is a, a, a new thing that I, that I did this week, and I, I loved it so much, I want to keep doing it like every morning. I want to start my day with this foundation, this reminder. I need to be reminded of the gospel a lot because what I do, I put my identity in what people say about me. I put my identity in how well I perform. I put my identity in how well is the church doing? How well am I pastoring people? People giving me good compliments. What are you prone to? Let me assure you, friend, that nothing is sweeter than rooting yourself in your identity in Christ. Nothing will be more transformative to your life, more transformative to your day than knowing that you are in Christ, starting in Christ, sustaining in Christ, ending in Christ. Let's remind each other of this, right? Let's speak the truth and love to one another. Stephanie, you are loved by God the Father as a daughter. What you do at work, what people think about you, means nothing because Christ has already said the final word about you. This is, I, I, can you guys do this with me? I love it, honestly. It just feels so good, doesn't it? We need to be reminded of the gospel. Jesus was to look you in the face. What would he say about you? And why do you care what other people else think, say? Paul helped us see that we are saints in Christ. And the question I want to think this week is, what does it look like to live out of an identity instead of for one? <coughs> what would that look like? This is what Paul seems to get at throughout the letter. He writes to the church in Ephesus, live a life worthy of your calling. In other words, be who we were called to be. Or another way of saying that is be who you are. What I found in my life, and I'm sure you guys have found this as well, is God oftentimes gives us opportunities to practice this. 
Maybe he'll test us. He'll refine us in our identity and what we're placing our hope and trust in. Refines our false belief. And all times, for me personally, he does this through stress. When I start to get stressed, I realize my identity is not in Christ. And I think sometimes that I try to avoid stress or stress is like a really bad thing, and I don't view it as God's kind of hand in my life trying to point me to something deeper that's going on. Are you a stressed? Are you a person that is easily stressed, often stressed, worried a lot? God oftentimes uses failures. He'll stick his leg out and trip us so we fall on our face when we're going the wrong direction, I would think. I don't know why I just thought of the illustration, but it just came to me. This happened this week um, with me. I was going to this conference that I was telling you about, and I was riding down there with um, Kyle Moffat, who was the pastor at Normandy Christian. And of course, uh, I was starting to slide into this mentality, this belief of I wanted to impress him, um, wanted to show him how good of a pastor I am. <laughs> and we, we pull into the parking lot of this church, and as I'm pulling in, I hit a truck. Just sideswipe it. Now, I've never gotten in an accident. I've never hit anything. Uh, I've driven my truck for a long time. I've never done anything like that. And immediately, embarrassment, failure. <laughs> I look like an idiot, right? Don't know how to drive my own truck. I just hit a guy. Really responsible, Daniel. I think God would give me an opportunity to put my, my trust in him. What if we thought about failures in this way? So first off, those in Christ are called saints. As we're looking to apply this passage to our life, uh, number one, I believe that we, as if you are in Christ, if you are a saint, um, God's holy people are to be dedicated to him and they are to be set apart. Now, if you're here this morning and you're not a Christian, you, don't, you wouldn't identify yourself as being in Christ, let me give you a vision of what Christianity should look like. You want to see what it really looks like. Look for this in other people. Christians are to be set apart. So if we are in Christ, we need to ask ourselves this question, how are we set apart? Are we set apart? Are our conversations set apart? Is our vocabulary set apart? Is the way that we spend our time set apart? Is our personal habits set apart? <laughs> Along those lines, number two, I think as those who are in Christ, we should be characterized by steadfast affection or allegiance to Christ. Now, for myself, oftentimes I don't want to think about areas in my life in which I'm not as alleged to Christ. No. Well, I don't have the allegiance to Christ that I think I have in him. Let me explain it that way. So I, I'm, I'm asking these kind of questions to try to get at the, 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 what's going on here. Um, not to make you feel bad, but really to help us get at the core of what's going on. What are we ultimately committed to? And a helpful way that I did that this week is I thought about my death. I did my first funeral ever on Saturday, so I was thinking about death this week. How often do you think about your death? I think it's a pretty helpful exercise, actually. It kind of refocuses our priorities. Might catch some of your friends off guard. As I, I did this with Will. I asked him to preach my funeral when I die, if I die before him. 
what do you want people to say about you at your funeral? What do you want to be known for? You want to just be known as a good person? You really knew how to hobby well. You love to watch TV and go to the casino. Do we have ambitions that strive deeper than what the world wants? Than maybe even what we've ever experienced. Maybe for us, we've had Christian mentors or Christian parents or people in our life that have taken us what we thought was deep. But as we were getting deeper, we were realizing there's so much more to go here. Are we content in just being a good person and just being saved? Or do we want to go deeper? I hope that some of your families invite me to preach at your funeral. And my, my goal, my hope, my aim would be that I would characterize your life as someone who loved God. There was nothing that he or she was more committed to, more dedicated to than God. I want to say that at your funeral if I preach it. I want you to say that at my funeral if you're there at mine. Do we want to be known by radical devotion to God? Are we, are we content by being just good enough? Well, you know, here at the Mountain Church, we have a little bit higher bar. So, you know, as long as Daniel thinks that I'm kind of happy or he, I'm happy with him or kind of living up to whatever standard that is, then that's good enough. You know, some churches just want their people to come on Sundays. Maybe they'll come to a Wednesday night group. You know, Daniel wants us to go to two things and show commitment to there. That's, that's a little high, so I'll, I'll do that, and that's kind of good enough. I'll serve twice a month. That's more than other Christians do. <laughs> I'll share the gospel 12 times a year. That's more than other Christians do. Do we have this contentment line that we're like, oh, I'm there? Or do we want to be marked by radical devotion to God? What does the way you spend your time, spend your money, use your talent demonstrate about your affection or allegiance to Christ? Have you bought the lie that you're only required to demonstrate allegiance to Christ in certain areas of your life? Bought into the lie that, that Christianity, that the gospel, that the life of a disciple can be compartmentalized. So I show my allegiance to God a couple hours a week, I serve. But the other hours a week, I do whatever I want. I'm feeling like I'm getting a little heavy because I'm just feeling the room here, that there's conviction going, coming down. I'm feeling it for myself. And I'm saying this because I want you guys to hold me to the standard as well. I don't want to be compartmentalized. I don't want to be this pastor who just, it's a job, but then I kind of live like everyone else when I'm off. I think one of the saddest realities of this is for many Christians after gathering with one another, after listening to the word preached, after singing songs to Jesus, we conclude a gathering in prayer. Instantly, thoughts of God are shut off. Instantly, talking about Jesus' affections for him are shut off. Immediately, other gods are brought up and worshipped or talked about. 
Sadly, there may even be some in this room that are more excited to worship football later than they were to worship Jesus with the church this morning. Do we demonstrate greatest allegiance to Christ? Are our conversations about equipping and helping one another grow in commitment to Christ? Are we genuinely interested in one another and in their walk with Christ? Are we content with just asking the question, how are you doing? Good. Great. I had a great week too. Okay, let's move on. Do you take the time to ask, how can I be praying for you? And do you actually do it? Something else to think about this week. How will this decision, how will this conversation honor Christ? How will what I'm doing grow my affections for Christ? How will this help me solidify my allegiance to Christ? Some of the questions that you might ask, how will watching this television show help my affections grow for Christ? If they don't, why are you watching it? How will eating this whole pizza demonstrate a commitment to Christ? I love the Kirkland Signature Costco pepperoni pizzas. They're some of the best out there. Really thin crust. And I can just, just munch a whole one down and feel like a pig. <laughs> Truly. How will making this purchase grow my affections for Christ or help me bless someone? Finally, thirdly, if we are in Christ, we're not only saints, we're not only those who are called to be faithful, set apart, committed to Christ, we are called to be sent. Now, I know I talked about in one sense of the word, an apostle is someone who is directly associated, met Jesus, the kind of, you could call it maybe a capital A apostle, but the word apostle could also mean messenger, someone who is sent, an envoy. In that sense of the word, is apostleship limited to the 12 or to Paul? No. The Bible is clear. All of God's people are sent out to do the mission of God wherever they are. Luke records in Acts 1.8, Jesus says to his people, you, the Holy Spirit's going to come upon you, and you're going to be my witness everywhere. Essentially, that's what he says. Before Jesus leaves, earth, after being resurrected from the dead, after appearing to his disciples, he says, go make disciples, all people, baptize them, teach them to observe all that I've commanded you. God saves his people and he sends them. You even see this, this theme throughout uh, the Old Testament. God tells Abraham to go. God tells his people, the Israelites, to go. God tells his disciples to go. We are not to create bubbles of holiness where we isolate and shut ourselves off from the world. We are to live in the world showing the difference the gospel makes. I genuinely believe and firmly believe that people in Seattle are looking for comfort that is lasting, that is real, that is sweet, right? People are looking for happiness, for joy. And the sadness, the sad thing is, is they haven't found it truly if they haven't found Christ. 
people out in Seattle, people out in Des Moines, people in our communities and our workplaces are not looking, I don't think, for a, simply a, a belief or a, a confession of, well, this is what Christianity is about. I think they want to see it actually take place. They want to see, okay, you say that you have a comfort, you have a joy that transcends everything else in Christ. What does that look like? How can I believe you if, I'm not, if it's not being demonstrated? That's really, can we see how that's really confusing for people? Like there's people in our workplace and we pray, we're very vocal about our Christianity, but we literally are not very different than them. They're going to think, why do you do that? They might think, well, because you think you're a good person. You're really self-righteous. You're really hypocritical. You just want to feel good about yourself. You're really selfish. You have a lame hobby. I get to sleep in on my Sunday morning. Do we show the difference that Jesus is making in our life? And not that we have to be perfect. I want to be clear about that. But that we are honest and open. Do we have conversations with our coworkers? Hey guys, I was, last week I was really impatient. And that was not a good reflection of Christ. Have you ever said that to your coworkers? Maybe, maybe right now you need to go to the last restaurant you went to and apologize for your weak tip. Because your lack of generosity was not a good reflection of Christ. When we forget who we are, I think we forget what we're supposed to do. I had a moment yesterday as I was driving in my truck to the, the funeral in Seattle where the presence of God was so real to me that I just started crying in my truck. Thinking about the reality that when Jesus says, all authority on heaven and earth has been given to me, just think about that. The God who made everything, everything that exists because of Jesus, who made everything, Lord of Lords, King of Kings, all authority, all power given to him. And he follows that statement with, I am with you always. Do we, do we realize that? Do we live like that? I don't, a lot, I mean, I want to grow in that, right? I want to walk into a room and say, the Lordship of Jesus Christ is with me and he is over this place now. Walking with Jesus, wherever I go, he is with me. He has authority, power over everything. I want to live like that because I oftentimes live like a, a failure. I live like a little weakling. I live like I'm timid. I'm scared. I'm not bold in my faith. I'm not bold in my witness for Jesus because I don't really believe he's with me or I don't really believe that he's all powerful. One of my favorite movies in Christmas time is a movie called Elf. It's a movie that stars a guy named Will Ferrell who plays a guy who was raised by elves and is a human and kind of has a, well, wrong identity. Um, <laughs> one way to describe it. But there's a scene in this movie that I think so accurately describes what I want to grow in, how I want to be characterized. Um, he's working in this Christmas shop. They're getting things ready for the Christmas season. He's decorating. He's helping this girl with ribbons. And the manager walks in and says, forget the exact time, but he says, at this time, Santa's coming. And Will Ferrell, the guy who plays Elf, just screams, yeah, Santa! 
Santa! Oh my gosh, Santa, he's coming! And he looks over and he says, I know him. Right? I might have butchered that a little bit, but that's kind of the gist of what happens. How much better is Jesus than Santa? The giver of all life, the creator of all things, and we know him. <laughs> he knows us by name. I mean, do we get excited about that? Just think about that, honestly. It's powerful. When we walk into work, do we walk into work with the understanding that I am representing Christ? I am demonstrating what a life looks like under his lordship and authority. Do we walk into the grocery store? Do we go to tot time? Do we demonstrate that Jesus' lordship is he's over everything in my life? This is what we're to do as Christians. This is what Paul writes. Those who are loved by God and are, what does he say there? Excuse me. To the saints who are faithful in Christ Jesus, grace and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Now this Lord means supernatural master overall. It means it could mean owner, one who owns and controls everything. It means ruler, one who exercises authority over. And this is Jesus to us. Do we submit to him as Lord? Does our, life limit, does our life demonstrate this reality, this understanding, this identity that we have as being sent? How often do we forget who we are? This is something as a leader and as uh, a leader in the mountain church especially, I will continually push. Will, Nathan, we will continually push for us to understand this reality, to live out of this reality. We are sent. We're not saved to sit. I am prone to believe a false lie, a false belief uh, that I'm not really sent anywhere. I'm a choice person that God chose. I'm not chosen with a particular task. I'm prone to wander. I'm prone to get lazy. I'm prone to become callous. And we need to continually grow as a church in our mentality to be intentional in being sent as Christ's representative. I think we can look around at this space and see there's opportunity here. We've got empty seats. We've got a building that God has given us that is half empty. We've got leaders in our church that are ready to go. We want to be set apart. And, and as I conclude this, my last thought on this was um, kind of tying all three of these in. I think something that, that we can grow in, that um, we can focus more in on, that gets that being uh, committed to Christ, devoted to Christ, that gets at our separation, our being set apart, and gets at our being sent. And that is the way that we view our homes. Because in our homes, we can do all three of those things. We can show who our greatest commitment is as we have people in and we show them what does it mean to follow Jesus? What does it mean to have a life of honoring of God? We can be set apart with our homes. I don't know about you, but I'm realizing more and more that church planting in suburban areas is hard because people in suburban areas 
isolate themselves. They go to work in Seattle. They go to work in Tacoma. They go to work somewhere else. They come to their home and they're content. I've got my shows that I watch that are DVR'd. Every week I watch those. I go to sleep. In the summertime, I go out. I take trips with my family. I do those kind of things. But a home, I think, for, for people that are outside of Christ in Des Moines, primarily looks like a secluded sanctuary of safety and solitude. I haven't seen a lot of my neighbors in months. I don't know about you guys. What if we viewed our homes as strategic centers for gospel ministry? What if we viewed our homes as being marked by radical hospitality and sacrificial service? If you're here this morning and you're thinking, man, I don't know where God has sent me. Do you have a place to live? That's where he sent you. Do you work? Are you in a community? I wanted to close by just taking some time to pray for us along these lines. I want to take time as a leader to confess and repent to you guys that I have become callous and I have become um, lazy in this. It's not been a, a major focus. My tendency often is to get inward focused, to become complacent, to forget who I am as uh, someone who is sent as a missionary. So as we close our, our time together, before we partake of communion, before we worship, I just want us to pray together, uh, to repent together, uh, for, for God to for ask us to give us hearts for him, give us hearts for our neighbors, give us hearts for those who, who want hope, who want peace, who want love, and they're just waiting to see it in us. I was talking with a guy who was a, a, a high up at the UGM, the Union Gospel Mission, and he was telling me how um, in, instead of trying to take people out of the church to serve in UGM, they are starting to think, how can UGM come along and serve the church? How can we serve those who are nonprofits? Those are parachurch organizations in our community. And this guy, Chris, who works at the UGM, went to 30 nonprofits, Christian-based, trying to do uh, the work of gospel ministry in the city. And he said, we went to one place, and they said, what we're looking for is people who are willing to walk, enter into relationship, mature believers to come alongside these people. They went to the next one. You know what they said? The same thing. 30 places all said the same thing. We are looking for mature disciples to enter into relationship with the people that we have. Whether this was homeless ministry or refugees or whatever it was. A huge problem in our church and something that we will need to fight against is this selfishness that seeks into, subtly seeks into everything that we do. That we're content with our house, with how things are. We're not going to look for outside of people. We're not going to sacrifice so that we have to give ourselves. We have to give our time. We have to actually befriend people. We have to enter into relationship with people. That sounds like a lot of work. I would pray that God would give us hearts to do this to step into a relation with those who are in our life that we can walk with to show them the difference that the gospel makes. So I'm going to close in prayer. Um, Nathan, if you wouldn't mind coming up and just opening the time. Um, Will, if you'd come up as well, and we can just pray along these lines for God to grant, for us to repent to God, uh, for us to give us hearts for him, and uh, for us to be faithful witnesses in our city.
Father God, I just pray that as Daniel's preaching, Lord, that we would just, well, that you would be reminding us about who, where, I, where our identity is, Lord. That it is in you, it is in Christ, and what that means. That our identity is no longer rooted in the things that we chase after and the things that we're trying to accomplish in the dreams we might have and the goals that we want to create for ourselves, Lord, and in the, the success that we want from this world. Lord, transform our identity to truly be in you. That we might be seen people in our lives, Lord, the people in our community, the people in our church, the people in our neighborhoods, the people in our work, that when we look at them, we see them as you see them, that our hearts will be broken for them, that we would love them, that we would desire for them to meet you. And that we would approach our relationship with them with an eagerness that they, in, in speaking with us and getting to know us and us just being able to love them, Lord, that they might encounter you through us. Father, I pray that you would just transform our will, our mind, our hearts to want to seek after you, to want to live on this mission for you. Father, I pray that you would remind us every day this week and the weeks after that we are a sent people, that you saved us to send us out. You did not save us to just sit down Father, I pray that you would move us from this church, that you would move this church to saturate the sound, to saturate Des Moines, saturate our neighborhoods. That Lord, when people encounter us, they will encounter something different because we they are encountering you through us. Father, I just pray that you would move us. You would. <laughs> that our hearts would be focused on you. That you would be number one in our lives, in our desires. Father, thank you so much for who you are. Father, I ask for forgiveness for knowing that I leave you often in the car when I go into work. Father, when I'm dealing with my daughters, when they're frustrating me, that I'm just looking to correct behaviors, Father, and not guide them closer to you. Father, I'm sorry. Father, I know that I, I want to be found in you 
And Father, I pray that's for our church, that we are able to think about this conversation with you. Father, if we close our eyes to know that you have called us, that you have brought us into the fold to be something more than what this world would tell us we deserve. Father, I just pray that for me, for this church body, that we seek to grow closer after you, that we seek to put you first. Fathers, we've talked about before, you're not the co-pilot in the situation, Father. You're the pilot and we're in the back seat. Take us where you want us to go, Father. Let us seek you and treasure you above all things. Let us find our identity in who you are and let that permeate everything that happens in our lives, our decisions, our interactions, our conversations, our choices, our activities, all centered around you. Father, we love you. But we know that you loved us first and called us to be saints. And Father, I pray that we start living like that. forgive my complacency and my pride my laziness forgive me for wanting to build a name for myself for this church for my selfish ambition Father forgive me for putting my hope and my trust and my joy in things other than you that have only left me disappointed and hurt, frustrated. I thank you for your grace in allowing me to see that you are better. All I want to submit to you, I want to be more like you. I want others to experience the joy of knowing you. Father, I ask that you would root our identity in you more deeply as we gather together, as we sing to you, that these songs that we sing would just drive it deeper into our hearts, that we are yours. Would you be glorified as we do this? Would others come to know you be because of our joyful worship, because of our commitment to them, because of us living out of an identity and not for one? So Lord, we, we want to confess and repent of our, of our sin and return to you. We want to have eyes to see what you're doing. We want to step into the work that you are doing. We want to serve where you want us to serve. We want to do so with humility. We want to do so with holiness. Would you set us apart? Would you make us taste salty? Would you let the light shine that others might see you in us? We do this so that you might be glorified and that all people might be uh, receive the joy and happiness in following you. I love you, Father, in your son's name I pray. Amen. Sometimes when we talk about mission and, and being sent and um, our responsibility along these lines, the temptation can be you hearing from me, do more. 
You're not doing it right. You need to do more. And I try to say it as best as I can every time that we talk about this, is that it's not about doing more. It's about coming into line, coming deeper into an identity that cherishes Christ. Because the deeper we root ourselves in Christ, the deeper we place our identity in him, the deeper we find our joy and our satisfaction in him, that is what leads to doing. That is what leads to overflow. That is what leads to fruit. So I pray as we talk about these things that it would allow, we would allow God, we would allow the songs, we would allow God's word to just drive that into our hearts. That as we sing songs like standing here in your presence, wide awake, stirred by grace, that these things would actually happen. When we say sinking deep in your love, we would, we would f- know that. We would be experiencing that. We would be longing for that. So what we do every week at the Mountain Church is participate and, and try to tune our hearts to this, tune our hearts to the gospel, tune our hearts to remembering the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. And we do this through something called communion. Uh, we share a meal together. A meal that when Jesus was having his last meal with the disciples said, take this cup, which is the new covenant of my blood. Do this in remembrance of me. And he takes a bread and he says, this bread represents my body that's broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. So we do this every week to remind ourselves of the gospel, to come forward and hear the words of the gospel, Christ's body broken for you, Christ's blood shed for you. So this is a time that is, that's open to all those who profess belief in Christianity, profess belief in Christ. If you are here this morning and you are not yet a believer, I ask that you refrain from coming forward and instead think about some of the prayers that are on the, the notes for guest slide or think about some of the words that we've been singing. Think about the scripture that we just read and, and talked through. Uh, so service can come forward. Uh, the table is open. Please come at your own pace.